I really started struggling with addiction. And because of that, I stopped taking care of myself. And that looks like not taking my testosterone shots. And so I stopped my shots for two and a half months. I relapsed in my sex addiction. And I ended up with the biggest blessing of my entire life unexpectedly. Well, hello, hello. Welcome to the Queer Family Podcast, the show all about family, but with gay. (laughs) My name is Jamie. I'm your host. And you're listening to the show whose mission is to uplift, highlight, celebrate, and normalize queer families. And we're doing just that in this here episode. In today's episode, I talked to Danny Wakefield, otherwise known as Danny the Trans Dad on the Instagram and the TikTok and all the places. And listen, listen, if you're not following Danny the Trans Dad, you need to go do that right now because, oh my God, Danny talks about so many beautiful things. Uh, We had such a wonderful conversation. I cannot wait to share it with you. Danny is a trans masculine, non binary parent with a two and a half year old living out here in the world. Also a recovering addict, a recovering sex addict, among other addictions. And we just really have a l- amazing, I don't want to say lovely, because we go into some pretty deep places, just an amazing conversation about Danny's experience in finding Danny and becoming the parent that Danny becomes. I, I'm not going to say anymore. Oh my God, it's, it's such an amazing conversation. Go follow Danny if you aren't already. And then before I roll this tape, I do want to mention one big thing. We have a phone number. We have a phone number that you can call and leave us a voice. Why do I keep saying us? Like there's more people here. It's me. You can call this phone number and leave me a voice message or a text, but I do prefer a voice message so I can share because what I'm asking you to do is to share what I'm calling your queer conundrums. It's a segment we're going to start calling called the queer conundrums segment. And the number is 646-470-1840. That's 646-470-1840. I wish it had a cool like acronym to it, but it doesn't. It's just the numbers. So you're going to have to just write it down or memorize it. That's what I'm trying to do, memorize it, but I still have to look at my notes. But what what is the Queer Conundrum segment? So what I'm asking you to do is call in and tell me your experiences, maybe the microaggressions or sometimes the macroaggressions you face as a queer person showing up in this world that our non-queer counterparts don't necessarily experience. And I do realize that that can get kind of heavy. So to keep it on the light side, I'm also asking for your queer parenting conundrum stories. Those stories that are slightly comical, but are definitely unique to our queer parenting journeys out here in this non-queer world. For instance, like uh, when my son was like newly talking and, you know, like the only men in his life were actually like the dads of his friends because all of his friends called the men dad. He just started calling every man in the world dad. So he would go up to a man and just be like, dad, dad, you know, we'd have to explain, no, 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 no. It's, it's just that he doesn't have that many men in his life. And then that's awkward too. And then people, you know, so it's stories like that that are just slightly 
humorous, but very unique to our queer situations. And then also, you know, there's some depth to that story as well, because there's a lot of explaining to do and a lot of conversation to be had and all that stuff. So I want to hear all of your queer conundrum stories. So send them in, please call, call, text, send it all. I can't wait to share your conundrums. And we're starting it off with one on the heavier side, but also a very universal one that I think everybody's going to relate to. This one comes in from Emily. Emily says, I live in the South and have lots of weird experiences surrounding being queer. Emily sent a text, not a voicemail. So I'm reading it for Emily. Forgive me for that. But Emily says, I worked in a salon where the manager asked me not to talk about my family with clients. Yeah. I think that's something we can all relate to. I think every one of us has a story like that. And if you don't, lucky you. I had a, uh, my very first girlfriend, we went and visited their family for the first time. And we were going with her dad and siblings to visit grandpa. And we all drove over there and dad came over to the side of the car right before we were ready to go into grandpa's house where the aunts and the uncles were and said, Hey, I, I you know, I, I respect you. I love you. It doesn't bother me that you show your love, but please don't show it in front of grandpa. That was a moment. And if you're listening, ex-girlfriend of mine who knows who you are, that was a moment for us. And so I want to I hear it. And I do also want to highlight and acknowledge the fact that my microaggressions and macroaggressions can be very different from experiences of folks from the global majority who are not necessarily like me, cis, white, lesbian woman showing up with the privilege I show up with, want to acknowledge that up front, that my experiences can be deeply, deeply, deeply different than some other folks' experiences out there. If you're willing to share them, I want to hear them. And I appreciate all of you. And I love that you continue to tune in. And I just wanted to take a second to acknowledge my privilege. I know I have it. I see it. And I think that all of us need to do a better job, a good job of actually like acknowledging our privilege publicly as much as we can in order to help those who don't have it. The more we talk about it, the more maybe it'll, it'll actually be acknowledged by those who don't want to acknowledge it. Anyway, I'm going to get off my soapbox. I want to play Danny's episode for you because it's just a beautiful conversation. Oh my God. One more thing. This is a first. There was a bird in the interview. Danny's cockatoo <laughs> was on Danny's shoulder almost the whole time, except when Danny started talking about <laughs> how much <laughs> Danny's child changed their life and how much Danny loves their child. That bird got mad. That that bird flew away. If you watch the video, you'll see it. And also there's some really loving moments when there's points when Danny was getting kind of emotional and sensitive. And Miko, the cockatoo, would like nestle into Danny's neck. I don't even know if Danny even realized it was happening, but I noticed it and it was like so beautiful. It's like they're very in tune. Anyway, this is a first. We have a cockatoo on the show and the cockatoo has opinions. So you got to <laughs> watch the video on our YouTube channel or on our Patreon channel to see Miko the cockatoo as well as Danny. Okay, that's it. I'm going to have Helen and Beulah, my fake assistants, to please roll that tape, ladies. Roll it. <laughs> Queer Family Podcast, love is love. Hi, Danny. Hi, Jamie. How are you? I'm doing well. Okay, good, good. We have a special guest here with us on um, Danny's shoulder. It's 
Miko. <laughs> Who's Miko, Danny? Miko is my 15-year-old Goffin's cockatoo. Oh my God. This is our first cockatoo, our, our first bird <laughs> on the show. So welcome, Miko. <laughs> We're so happy to have you. <laughs> she's, she's ecstatic to be here. So yeah, if you're watching the video, that's Miko. Just in case. And if you're not watching it, you should go, you know, get on the video on YouTube so you can see me go. Okay, Danny, let's just get right into it. You're going to give our audience your 30-second elevator pitch, and then we're going to delve in after that. I'm going to put a little timer up, but don't worry. I'll never cut you off. This okay. is all just in good okay. fun. All right, here we Sounds go. Great. On your mark, get set, go. I'm Danny. So I am a 37, tomorrow I turn 37 years old. I'm a trans-masculine, non-binary person. I'm also a recovering addict. I have three and a half years sober. I'm also a single parent. I have an, the most amazing two and a half year old who I gave birth to two and a half years ago. I'm also an animal lover. I love traveling. Um, I love connecting with people and creating bridges between communities that you wouldn't typically find. I love creating community, both online and in person, and um, connecting with people in, in this exact way is really what fuels me as a person. Boom. That was amazing. You went a little over, but I'm not mad about it. I'm not mad at all. That's perfect. Welcome to the Queer Family Podcast, Danny. You are a part of this community, and I love that you love to build mm. community. Thank you, Jamie. I'm so grateful to be a part of this community. Oh, wow. Okay, so let's take it back. Like, I'm trying to think of how far back we should go. <laughs> let's take it, I don't know, let's take it to, to little Danny and like when you found your true identity, let's take it to that place. Like, what was your process for finding yourself? And I know that's a process that is ongoing and forever and ever and ever. Amen. Mm. But, you know, where's the beginning? Yeah, the beginning is, I mean, identity is fluid and it's ever-changing. So I've gone through a number of phases of finding my true authentic self. And mm -hmm. even though that's changed over the years, that doesn't mean that one stage of authenticity is any more valid than, than another. Mm -hmm. So I knew from a very young age that I was different. I didn't have the words for what that meant. And it was around the age of 12 years old that I actually had my first girlfriend. And I was living in the world as female and in a very small town, a very small town in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. um, and so word got around very quickly. And I hadn't uh. come out to my mother yet, actually. And she found out through somebody else. Oh, God. And I'll never forget that day because my parents have made a lot of mistakes, but they've done the one thing that you need to do perfectly. And that support me no matter what. There they didn't you go. understand they didn't understand my identity. They don't mm -hmm. understand why I wanted to transition, but they've always said that no matter what, you're our child and we're going to support you either way. And so that was my mom's reaction when I was 12 years old. Got a girl. Get it. Get it, mom. Right? I have goosebumps talking about it because <sighs> my mom is the type of person where then later on in life at the age of 25, when I came out as trans to her, I didn't have the vocabulary. I didn't have the experience is to know that um, I could be, I could transition genders and also I didn't have to be a man. I, I could identify as non-binary, that I didn't have mm -hmm. to transition from female to male, that there was this whole other identity out there that fit me. It finally mm. felt like something fit. Um, and so I came out to her as trans when I was 25 and her reaction was, I don't want you to, I don't want you to do this. I don't understand why you were going to do this. I'm scared for you. Mm. But again, you're my child. And if this is what you want and need, I'm going to support you anyway. 
she didn't use the right pronouns for quite a while. She mm-hmm. used my given name for quite a while, but she tried. And mm-hmm. that that is the piece that I have so much patience around. If somebody is willing to try, then I have all the patience in the world for that. And my mom was willing to try. And say, same as my dad. And I'm actually a twin. I have a twin sister with disabilities whom I was the most scared to tell because my twin sister, she was born dead and she, was, she went 28 minutes without oxygen after our birth. And because of that, she has a bunch of, um, she's a miracle baby. She's known as the miracle child in Wisconsin because my mom had this spiritual experience where a light went through the, through her body and into my sister and my sister started breathing. I have so many oh goosebumps right now because oh my she's, oh my God. she's a miracle. Is, oh so, my God, Danny. So because of that, she has very, very, um, she struggles with memory. Like she's got like a, literally like a 10 second memory. Her entire room, her entire home is plastered with sticky notes as reminders, stuff like that. And so I was the most worried to tell her because I thought she would forget. Uh, and then to have to come out over and over. Over and over and over again, exactly. And you know what happened? What? Of every single person in my family, she is the only one who has never gotten my pronouns wrong. Oh. She's never called me her sister. It's always, it's, since then, it's been her brother, her little brother, whatever. She's two minutes older than me. That's fine. I'm still her little brother. But <laughs> she has never, it's never skipped a beat. And that really taught me, like that taught me. And my grandfather was the same way. My 93-year-old grandfather, every time, my whole family lives in Wisconsin. And every time I came home to visit them, my grandfather would take me out on town and show off his grandson who was home from Seattle And that, those two people were the two that I was the most worried about. And they were the two who were the most accepting and fluid and easy. And it really taught me that my fear will often, often make things feel harder than they actually are. And that when I have the faith of just to walk through those hard things, that usually the universe creates magic and support that I didn't even know existed in places that I didn't even know I could find it. Danny, you're going to make me cry over and over again, I think. This is going to be like a really tearful episode. Jesus, what are you doing to me? (laughs) I'll be right there with you soon enough, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) Yes and yes, I am affirming everything (laughs) you just said. Beautiful. (laughs) Ugh, I could write down everything. I, well, I mean, I'm going to, I am going to make a quote out of it because that's <laughs> what I do. But anyway, mm. wow, Danny, that's profound. So I do want to take it back to, you did say that mm-hmm. you didn't have the vocabulary to realize, mm-hmm. you know, that, that you were trans. Mm-hmm. And so what was it? What helped you see that? Was it a move? Uh, you know? No, it was discovering YouTube. I discovered a YouTube channel of somebody who was documenting their transition, Skylar who was documenting his transition. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I saw his documentation of starting testosterone and even just the language he was using, I was like, oh, that's it. Even though I had had, in high school, I had trans friends. And so Mm -hmm. it wasn't like it was a new concept to me. Like I knew trans people existed and I knew people who were trans, but it was as if I wasn't at a point where I was ready to come home to my own identity. Like I had to be in this space where I was in acceptance and awareness, right, of my own identity. Mm-hmm. At 25, I stumbled upon this YouTube channel and it just clicked. 
It was instant. I knew exactly. I've never been more sure of anything in my life. And because of that, I had a really quick transition. I, within eight months, I had top surgery. Within six months, I was on hormones because I just, it was one of those things where I just knew it was me. You knew it. You just felt it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't need to question it. I just, mm-hmm. it was one of those things that I knew intuitively. Yeah. And it was like, I was like running home, right? Mm. To this comfort that I had never even knew could exist or that was missing until I found it. Wow. You're making me think back to, I had one moment, I was grappling, grappling, grappling. This is with being gay, but grappling, Mm -hmm. grappling, grappling with it, you know, in my 20s, like, am I? I don't know. You know, like that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like a female body, you know. And then I had this moment, I was walking down the street and this is, I'm not saying this is completely the same, but it's that feeling of clarity, right? So mm-hmm. I was walking down the street and my head just went, I'm a lesbian. I'm a lesbian. I'm a lesbian. Mm-hmm. And this feeling of just relief mm-hmm. washed over me. And like, a le- like mm-hmm. I felt a weight lift for, it was a split second, mm-hmm. right? But it was this mm-hmm. moment of, I guess to describe it as clarity. I had a moment of clarity and it felt right and it felt like home, like you say. For anybody grappling at home, like go inside, I guess, and and, and listen to your inner voice because it's in there. Mm-hmm. It'll tell you, but sometimes yeah. it's harder to hear. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I started to focus more on coming out. I like to think of it more as coming inward to myself versus coming mm-hmm. out to others a lot of my anxiety was relieved because I didn't have the pressure. I mean, I still, I didn't have like formal conversations around coming out after I had these moments of clarity. I just started the process. And then I went home and showed up and I went from having a a large chest to no chest. And my mom was like, where'd it go? What are you doing? Um, We're going to talk about something here. And that's when I came out is it just was an organic conversation because I was like, I bind now because of this. And that moment of clarity was sort of my launching point. But you mentioned something, you mentioned this like idea of going back and forth, like, am I a lesbian? Am I not? I did have that, like, I forget sometimes that I had for quite a while before I had the words of like, I'm trans. I had this, do I want to be a boy or do I want to date boys? Right? Because I was, I was, I was identifying as a lesbian. There was this unknown attraction towards men. And I was like, I don't think it's, is it, is it that? Like, am I attracted to men or do I want to be a man? turns out it was really basically neither because being a man in this society looks very and can feel very toxic. And that's, I want to recreate my own definition of what masculinity looks like. Mm-hmm. And I've learned that through the years of I've, as I've transitioned but before it felt very rigid. Like if I wanted to be a man, I had to be a certain type of man who acted a certain way that I didn't want to be like. And right. so I didn't feel like I could transition. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was like, I don't really want to be a man because that does not sound like it's for me. Mm-hmm. There were quite a few years where I went back and forth. And like, do I want to be a man or do I want to date men? There was that confusion, but it never connected the dots that I could be trans because I didn't have the words for transmasculine, right? Mm-hmm. Versus transgender, um, non-binary. Um, as I started collecting those those words and that vocabulary, that's when my identity really started to blossom. Mm. That's why representation matters so much. Absolutely. So Absolutely. freaking much, right? Let's take it to family building. Let's Let's go there. Unless you have mm. something that you want to cover before we get to that, I am dying to hear about 
becoming a single parent by choice and what went into that and where you are with, I just, I, I, this is, this is what the show's about, you know, queer families. So let's dig in. Yeah, let's dig in because I didn't take a process. I didn't, I have known since the time I was nine years old that I wanted to have a kid. I wanted mm-hmm. to carry a child. I wanted to have a family. I've always had the urge to, um, to carry and birth a baby, even though I don't identify as a woman. And so I've always known that to be true. But when I transitioned genders, the doctors told me that testosterone would make me infertile and also acts as a form of birth control. Neither of those are true or correct. Mm-mm. Right. So for nine years after starting my transition, nine years of being on testosterone, I was under the understanding that I was basically infertile and I didn't harvest my eggs, so I'd never be able to carry a biological child. And then I really, uh, I really started struggling with addiction. And because of that, I stopped taking care of myself. And that looks like not taking my testosterone shots. And so I stopped my shots for two and a half months. I relapsed in my sex addiction. And I ended up with the biggest blessing of my entire life unexpectedly. I wasn't planning on creating a family when I did. I didn't take any steps aside from having a one-night stand with somebody who wants no contact, which is A-OK with me. And so I fell into single parenting, even though my gut always told me that this was a path that I could take, not necessarily carrying my own child, but creating a family one day. I didn't plan it when it happened. The universe stepped in at the exact right moment and completely changed the trajectory. Trajectory, yeah. Trajectory, Um, yeah, I almost said it wrong. It's such a hard word. (laughs) Of my life. Um, And so I get a lot of questions. People often ask me, like, what was the process you went through? Did you do IVF? Like, all of these, like, what is it like? Like, how did you decide to become a solo parent by choice? And my reality is, is that I fell into this. Granted, I made choices, right? I very much made choices that led to this situation and also the universe did for me what I didn't think I'd be able to do for myself. Um, And getting pregnant, I got pregnant in the heat of my active addiction, both with chemicals and sex. And the moment I found out I was pregnant after eight years of trying to struggling to get and stay sober, I found sobriety and recovery. And I've been sober ever since. Congratulations. Absolutely is a gift from the universe and is the best thing that ever happened to me. And being a solo parent is right now absolutely the, the right journey for me to be on. If I could do this all over again, I would absolutely be a solo parent by choice. That's great. That's great because you are and um, <laughs> wonderful. Can we actually, because you mentioned sex addiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I just want to I just want to highlight the fact that you are one of the very, 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 very few guests, and there's over 200 episodes uh, on this show who actually did it the natural way to make their family. So, congrats! Mm. It's not that's well, a rare you. thing for us, you know. You get to it is you did it the old fashioned. However, um, I don't know if it was fun for you, but um, you, mm. you got it the old fashioned way. But actually, it, and that's I want to kind of pivot to that because it's actually. Mm. This is a topic we haven't covered, sex addiction. Are you comfortable digging into sex addiction a little bit? Because I'm pretty sure you're not the only one out there who who might struggle with this, as well as other addictions. But I'd love to hear a little bit about that. My sex addiction is my root and primary addiction. 
it's led to all of my other addictions, which have chemicals. In particular, my drug of choice has been uh, crystal meth. Mm. Um, I'm in recovery from meth. So the way that my sex addiction plays out is I'm a childhood sexual abuse survivor. Um, Sorry. Both incest and, and other experiences. And so that has shaped, that really shaped my addiction. So from a very early age, from early teens, I sought out situations that would allow me to re-harm myself in the same way that my body had been used to being harmed as a child. So when I act out in my sex addiction, I'm not going out and having this awesome sex, right? This, this, this passionate, intimate, joyous experience. Mm-hmm. I'm going out and I'm allowing men in particular to harm my body in a way that it, I was used to. Mm. Not that it ever worked. It never worked. But right. it got to the point where it hurt so much emotionally and mentally that it wasn't enough. And that led to marijuana. I tried uh-huh. to escape my sex addiction through using, through medicating with marijuana. And that led to, because there's such a, a correlation between sex and meth, that eventually led to my other addiction. But sex is absolutely my primary addiction, has been fueled by my childhood trauma. I've done a lot of work and therapy around that now. And I want to be very clear, and I don't think your audience would think this, but I want to be very clear that my trauma with sexual abuse has absolutely nothing to do with my gender identity and it has influenced it in no way. Same with my sexual orientation, right? Yes. That that abuse doesn't, I mean, of course it has impacted my identity, but it did, it it did no way determined my identity. No, Um, not at all. I just recently mentioned my sex addiction on my Instagram and the amount of people who didn't even know that it was possible to have a sex addiction hmm. was devastating. Oh, they were like, like, how can stigma. you be addicted to something? Yeah, it's, there's such a stigma that comes along with it that it's probably the least talked about topic on my on all of my platforms. This is probably the most I've ever spoken about it mm-hmm. publicly, which yeah. I'm very open to doing because that's part of how we're going to end this stigma, but also because I know I know that there are other trans and non-binary people out there who are struggling with a sex addiction and maybe they don't even know it. Maybe they don't even know that the way that they're harming their bodies or acting out is an addiction, right? Until they have the words or experiences to relate to. Yeah. Um, So it does feel really important to talk about it. And how did you know you had a sex addiction? I mean, how did you come to the realization, you know, for folks who might be struggling? When it became an obsession, when I started doing it in ways that were unhealthy and didn't feel good, when it became dangerous for me and for other people, when I was, I could tell based on the amount of shame and guilt that I was experiencing as I would do it. And the need would increase, right? The obsession, mm-hmm. it occupied my thoughts, it occupied, it, it had become an obsession at that point. Um, mm-hmm. It was an escape. I used it as a form of escaping the way that I was feeling Hmm. as I can do with, I'm an addict, right? So I can take food and use it addictively. I can take shopping and use it addictively. Like there, like there's so many ways that addiction can show up. And I knew because of my early experiences with sex and sexual abuse, that it could be unhealthy and it could be harmful and it could be hurtful. And because that was sort of all that I knew, there was this 
justification. That's the word I'm looking for. There was this justification to be to continue doing it in my adulthood because it was mm-hmm. all I had ever known. So I'm just going to keep doing it's it's what I know. Even even those moments where I was like, I don't I don't want to do this anymore. This hurts. This is not. I don't feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, my body is sacred. Even when I was having those moments, like it still, I still wasn't able to stop. And that's mm-hmm. how I know I am struggling with an addiction when every ounce of my being doesn't want to do it. And yet I'm still going through the motions and doing it. Mm, That's heavy. And I'm so sorry that that you struggle with Mm. that and that you have really struggled with all of this. Mm. Let's take it to um, to the pregnancy. So you relapsed, you end up Mm -hmm. pregnant. Let's go through that because you hadn't been taking your testosterone for how long now? Only two and a half months. And I had been on it for nine years. And I didn't even realize it had been that long. You just go a week and then it's two weeks and three weeks. And then I just, and then all of a sudden it was two and a half months. Were you just like forgetting to take it or? Yeah. There's Miko. You think so? Miko would like to um, have a say in this also. Um, um, Yes, it was a combination of forgetting and also not taking care of myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because when I start using and get into that addiction, then my self-care goes out the window. And one of my first forms of self-care is typically my shots. Because I already don't like giving myself a shot. It already sucks, right? Right. Um, So it's easy for that to like be the first thing to go. And that's one of my red flags now in recovery. I know that I'm not necessarily doing as well as I want to be or should be based on how well and regularly I'm taking my testosterone shot. Because, I mean, I've spoken to folks who, when they go off of their hormones, their mental health just diminishes greatly because Mm -hmm. the the hormones are what make them feel like themselves, Mm -hmm. right? Help. Yeah, absolutely. So, oof, man, that's And that definitely, that definitely happened. That definitely happened, but it was disguised by active addiction. So I thought that that deep depression that I fell into was because of the addiction, which it very well, it could have been a combination, right? Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I, in hindsight, can you just let me, let me, let me have the show here. But in hindsight, I'm really, she is, she likes to be the center of attention. She's, she's starting to get rowdy. (laughs) (laughs) This is not the time you go for a party. We're still working on this. I didn't know I was pregnant until I was two months along. I actually had COVID at the beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020, right when it was at starting to peak. Mm-hmm. And I got really, really sick. I didn't know I was pregnant at the time. If I had known I was pregnant, I would have ended up in the hospital. I would have gone to the hospital. But as a trans person with a lot of negative history around doctors and access and medical care. I was like, no, I will be on my deathbed before I go to the doctor. Mm. Um, And so I did that. I, and my, my friend was taking care of me and she was like, Danny, there's a day where I was, I was worried you weren't going to make it. And then I started to get better after a month. And then Mm -hmm. three days after I started to feel better, I got really, really sick again, but they were different symptoms. I was vomiting. I was throwing up, 32 to 50 times a day. Whoa. I called my doctor and I was like, what is happening? I think I'm, I, th- I, I don't know. I thought I was getting well. And, and my doctor was like, describe your symptoms again. And I did. And she's like, is there any way you could be pregnant? 
and it hit me. I was like, holy sh, yes, um, there could be. And I went to my best friend's house and she got me a pregnancy test and I took it in her bathroom and that line couldn't have been any darker than it was. Whoa. Whoa. So I had just went from being nervous that I wasn't going to live to finding out that I'm creating life. That like I was carrying a life inside of me. And my mom talks about this too, because my whole family lives across the country. And she was like, we didn't know if you were going to make it. Like we were terrified. Like I was ready to be on a plane out there. Mm. So I go from possibly losing my baby to finding out that they're pregnant. Like my parents were like, whoa, this is, this is, it's not that we don't support you, but holy cow, this is a lot to wrap our head around right now. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. So you, and so, okay. So you'd been sick for most of your pregnancy, like your whole pregnancy. Yes. I was sick. Yeah. I had hyperemesis my entire pregnancy. But I mean, up to this point, like the two months, like you had COVID and then you were sick. So like you weren't, were you acting on your addictions? No, 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 because you were so sick because I had gotten so sick. So that was literally like a grace of like, that was a, Oh, I'm getting emotional. That was a blessing from the universe. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm grateful. I'm so grateful that um, it's weird to say, um, but I'm so grateful that I I had COVID and Mm. that I was so sick because it absolutely prevented me um, from continuing down that path. (sighs) And so I can actually say that the last time that I used was the time, the night that I conceived Wilder. Wow. And so you're pregnant and you you knew right away you were going to keep the baby. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And not, not, I'm absolutely pro-choice and I, I have zero um, negative feelings about abortion. And also mm-hmm. I know, I knew that for me, it was literally a dream come true. Mm. Wow. Were you able, you're not able to take t- this. I don't know. Are you able to take testosterone? No, you are not. Nope. So what was that like? I think the combination of not having the testosterone in my system along with the added hormones of pregnancy right. I was an emotional being. Yeah. I was. Yeah. It was interesting because I was very emotional and felt off, but also at the same time, I felt more at home in my body than I've ever felt. Um, huh. And and people oftentimes hear that and they're like, well, then why don't you identify as a woman? Um, but the reason that I felt so at home in my body is because I was nine years into my transition. I had top surgery. I was living and presenting in the world as, as male. I didn't carry my baby as a woman. I carried my baby as a transmasculine, non-binary person. And because mm-hmm. I was able to find home in myself first, that allowed me to be an even better home for my baby. Wow. So people often ask me, um, like, were you sad that you couldn't breastfeed um, or chest feed? And no, I mm. wasn't because I believe that I would have experienced dysphoria in that mm. way. And I also don't believe that I missed out on anything. People often worry about the bond, right? Mm. And Wilder having breast milk, even though fed is, you want babies fed, right? Right. Yeah. But for me, it absolutely shaped the joy and the euphoria that I felt in my body while pregnant. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And I just want to say as both a bio mom and a non-bio mom, because my wife gave birth to our first and I did mm. not breastfeed her, that whole breastfeeding bond. Yes. I'm sure it happens. I'm sure it can happen, but mm. it is not necessary. 
is not necessary nope. at all. And that's something that's beautiful about our nope. queer families. We get to um, experience mm. it firsthand and see. Yes, it can be absolutely beautiful, but if you can't make it happen, it's still going to be fine. It's still going to be yeah. okay, right? I have the most amazing bond with Wilder, deeper and stronger than I could have ever imagined. Um, and I didn't, regardless of how they were fed, that bond was going to happen. Wow. Okay. So you've really felt at home in your body. And then, so you went mm-hmm. through your pregnancy as a trans, masculine, non-binary person. Mm-hmm. And how was that showing up in the world? Yeah, you know, it's the universe really worked its magic for me because at the time I was like, this is terrible. Like I am pregnant during a pandemic. Everybody was in quarantine. Nobody was going anywhere. I lived alone. So I was literally alone in the woods for my entire pregnancy, um, basically on bed rest. But because there was the pandemic, there was also extra assistance and resources provided to people, right? And so I wasn't even able to go out into public as a pregnant trans masculine non-binary person. Um, The only time I ever went out into public was to, I started the beginning of my pregnancy. I had an OBGYN because I had COVID and they didn't know how COVID would impact a fetus yet. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to, I was considered high risk at first because they wanted to monitor the growth of the baby and make sure that it didn't impact Wilder's development at all. And thank you by the grace of God, it didn't Mm -hmm. because now they're showing that it can oh that's scary but because of that i had severe anxiety my entire pregnancy because i didn't know how covid how me having covid was going to impact wilder so Mm. the only time that i would go out into public was for at the beginning for my obgy and appointments which i ended around six months i think but even by six months i was already showing more than a lot of people show when they're nine months. I carried very large. I even with hyperemesis, I gained a hundred pounds during my pregnancy and was just carried very large. Mm-hmm. My mom was the same way. Yep. It was very obvious and clear that I was pregnant and I was at mm-hmm. an OBGYN where you couldn't go, you couldn't bring people with, right? So oh, I wasn't right. in the waiting room waiting for somebody. It was very oh. obvious that I was the person there for the appointment. Yeah. I feel super grateful and blessed that I am from Seattle and there is a lot of, there's a lot more resources and access to care here. And one of my dear, dear friends is a ultrasound tech. Um, And so she was the person who I went to for all my ultrasounds. And so it was like I was in a room with family and I didn't have to worry. And she hooked me up with an an OBGYN who was very open and accepting and educated right? It's not just about having awareness and acceptance for trans and non-binary people. It's about having the education and how to best help and care for them. And she had that. Um, And so I feel really grateful that that was my experience because I know a lot of people who don't have that experience, but I did have to do, I did have to go to the emergency room five times during my pregnancy because my hyperemesis was so bad. And there were a couple of times where the first two hospital visits were very were quite traumatic. Like they didn't believe I was pregnant. They refused to give me an ultrasound. And this was when I thought I was having a miscarriage because oh I was my God. bleeding. Oh my God. And then instead of asking me questions directly, they'd pull the curtain and then they'd start talking amongst themselves about me, about how I'm not actually pregnant, about how they need to get a psych eval <gasps> and stuff like that. What? And so yeah, so from that oh, fuck. From that Sorry, experience, language. I, 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 exactly. From oh that experience, God. I learned how important it would be because I knew because of my hyperemesis, there was a chance that I'd have to continue, like I'd end up in the 
an emergency room again. And so I created a safety net for myself. I have a friend who um, works for the hospitals and is a trans ally. And she ended up being sort of like a doula for me, like a pregnancy doula. Mm -hmm. I would text her. I'd be like, I need to go to the emergency room right now. And she'd Mm -hmm. be like, go to this one right now. Go to this one. This person is waiting for you. They know that you are pregnant. They know that your pronouns are he, him. um, And they know what's wrong. Uh, Like they know why you're coming in. Right. Mm -hmm. And because of that, because of that allyship and her taking on that role, the three experiences in the emergency room that I had after that really negative experience were much different. They looked much different. But like the hoops, the hoops you had to go through and the hoops so many in this community have to go through and and the need for allies, right? Like imagine if you didn't have that ally Mm -hmm. because they're few and far between, right? So that's just a, it's like a call to attention everyone. I mean, mm-hmm. like I'm preaching to the choir with this audience, but it's <laughs> just like, oh my God, it's so infuriating. Mm-hmm. I'm infuriated for you for that. Exactly. And I say that like, these are all experiences that I have as a privileged white person, right? Ex- like, right. True. My black trans brothers and sisters, like they, like I know some of the experiences they've had and they, they're even, they're even, oh, they're even worse. Agreed. The privilege and and check the privilege. Let's all check our privilege mm-hmm. and let's all acknowledge our right. privilege. Yeah. God, let's all show up for everyone, right? Listen yeah. to the stories because things aren't right. There is also great stuff in the world, like your baby. So <laughs> it's so you have your ally, you have your kind of makeshift doula, if you will, and mm-hmm. and then and then let's get to baby. I knew from the moment I found out that I was pregnant that I wanted to give birth at home. It was just mm-hmm. another one of those gut instincts. Same with being trans. It's like, oh, this is just, this is going to be, right? This is right. It's going to be. I live out in the middle of the woods, about 45 minutes from the nearest hospital. Mm. So I learned that in order to create the birth space that I wanted as somebody mm. who is an empath and extremely sensitive to other people's energies, I needed to block out other people's birth stories, specifically birth traumas and anxieties, Mm. because a lot of people like my parents, my friends had a lot of fear around me giving birth at home in the middle Mm. of the woods, 45 minutes from the nearest hospital, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Especially November, at the end of November, where we get snow. And when we get snow here, we get snowed in, like there's no getting in and out. So there was that added layer. But it was just one of those things where I knew it was, it was, I just have goosebumps right now because it was just, it was a I just knew that it was going to happen, that it was supposed to happen that way. Three weeks before I gave birth, I ended up firing. At that point, I had a midwife and and another doula Mm -hmm. uh, who I had been working with for about four months. But I ended up letting them go because it didn't feel right. The midwife had a little bit too much anxiety that I felt. I felt her anxiety. And there was a lack of inclusive language that was used. Mm. Um, And I felt like I was having to teach them versus um, mm-hmm. sitting in my space and experiencing the present moment and, and the experience that I was about to have. So I let that team go three weeks before I gave birth, which was a huge risk, right? And I started planning having an unassisted home birth, which means that I give birth at home alone without a midwife, a doula, a doctor. I was planning an unassisted home birth. Wow, um, 
So are you, are you and, feeling my energy? Cause I'm scared for you. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the energy of everybody who like, I had to stop telling people my birth yeah. plan because mm-hmm. I was always met with that energy. Right. Mm-hmm. And then my friend was like, look, I hear you. I see you. And also I have this person who is a midwife who lives 40 minutes from you. Um, she's amazing. She comes highly recommended. And as soon as I met her, it was like, oh, okay. Like, this is who is supposed to be guiding me through this experience. Her energy was there. We were less than three weeks into a relationship together. And we had this profound relationship, right? Which mm. just exploded after I gave birth. It's such a special relationship between a, a birthing person and their midwife, um, like mm-hmm. forever family, right? So I found this midwife just about three weeks before I gave birth. And for as dark as my life was, when I conceived Wilder, that's how bright their birth was. Wow. Wilder brought so much light into my mm-hmm. life. My birthing experience absolutely changed my life. I've never felt more powerful and mm-hmm. more in my body and more grounded and calm than I felt for those 11 hours. Wow. It changed the way that I felt about myself. Mm-hmm. I had just mm-hmm. spent most of my life allowing others to harm my body. Mm-hmm. And now this body that was home for this dream come true, like how can I treat my body that way again? Like mm-hmm. I love my body in a way that I had never experienced before that I didn't even know was possible mm-hmm. because it allowed me to, to be a home for somebody else. And when I saw how beautiful of a home I could be for Wilder. I realized how beautiful of a home I am for myself and how much allowing others to hurt me goes against that. And so it really shifted. Like when I tell you Wilder brought light into my life, like that child is a light worker and like absolutely lit my world up. Wow. That's amazing. And I'll tell you what, Danny, I, that's how I thought my birth was going to go. Didn't go that way. Didn't go that way. So mm. I'm happy you had that experience. I thought I was going to have that experience. Does it happen to all of us? I feel extremely grateful that I had a birth plan and my birth went, I don't even want to say as planned. It went even better than I could have planned. Um, and I feel mm. so deeply grateful for that because there were four of us in my pregnancy, like four of us, my litter mates, right? Who were all pregnant at the same time. <laughs> Two of, three uh-huh. of us who were trans and one who was, sorry, one whom was a, a, a woman. And of all four of us, I am the only one. We all planned a home water birth and I'm the only one who got their home water birth. The other three had to transfer and had cesareans. So I'm extremely mm. grateful and appreciative that I got to have the experience that I had. So I just wanted to say that, that birth plans don't always and oftentimes don't go as planned. And I feel extremely grateful that the universe, that that mine went the way that it did, because again, it absolutely changed the the direction of my life. I appreciate you saying that. And I think it's Mm -hmm. important to be said to our audience as well, any of you who are pregnant and planning it all out. And Mm -hmm. it just doesn't always go as planned. And you know, be prepared, but mm-hmm. it could also be exactly what you want. Like exactly. that. And that's just absolutely beautiful. I love that. Mm-hmm. And so now you have a two-year-old. I have a two and a half year old somehow already. Two and a half year old. It's crazy. And how's it going? You know what? I, I don't even want to say it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. Well, also simultaneously being the most beautiful, joyous, profound experience of my entire life. 
I don't have words that go deep enough to describe the kind of love that I have for my child. It's a love that I never even knew existed. Sorry, Miko. Um, it's a love that I never even knew existed, right? <laughs> That's why um, she's pissed. She is. Oh, she just flew she's away. She's like, I'm out of here. She she's mad like, at me. How dare you? She is. She's PO'd right now. <laughs> Sorry, girl. Um, um, but also, but also, it's that love that I experienced for Wilder that has also f- fueled this newfound love for myself, right? So, for example, mm. my dad's always made fun of my butt chin. You can't see it right now because I have a beard, but I've got a dimple <laughs> chin, right? And my and uh-huh. I've always hated it because I used to get made fun of oh. for it. And then my child was born oh. with the most beautiful dimple chin I've ever seen. And I fell in love with Wilder's <laughs> dimple chin. It's one of my favorite things about them. And through that, I was like, oh, yeah, you've got a dimple chin too. And I fell in love with my dimple Aww. chin for the first time ever. And that is something that I don't know if I would have experienced had I not experienced this love for my baby's dimple chin. And that's just one oh. of the ways that Wilder has taught me self-love. There are so many profound moments like that. Mm-hmm. that Wilder has not only taught me, but also given me purpose. Mm, that's beautiful. You're right. And and the fact that he's giving you that self, I'm, Wilder is giving mm-hmm. you that self-love. I don't know the gender and I didn't mm-hmm. mean to gender. That's Wilder right. is giving you that self-love mm-hmm. is just profoundly beautiful. Yeah. And um, I just love that. It's been really powerful in my recovery journey also, right? Because I don't stay sober for wilder. I am not ever, I hope to never put that type of pressure on my child. I'm not sober because of wilder and it's not wilder who's keeping me sober. But the love that wilder has taught me to have for myself, that is what now allows me to stay sober. And so it's just like, I, I can't express the amount of gratitude that I have when I say that the universe did for me what I couldn't do for myself by, by giving me this child and changing my life. Like, I don't know if I would be alive right now if I hadn't Mm -hmm. accidentally gotten pregnant. I wholeheartedly don't think I would be. And, um, this child just every single day surprises me because they fuel this new type of love within myself that, um, day after day i'm like how does this keep getting better and better and better but it does somehow i love that danny that's amazing mm-hmm. oh, beautiful i'm so happy that you got pregnant me too that you fell <laughs> pregnant me too i'm so happy for you that's just tremendous mm-hmm. i'm so I, like i'm ecstatic for you this <laughs> has been such a lovely chat i'm so glad you are now part of the queer fam squad over here me too. danny Welcome. Thank you. This was the perfect podcast to start my my podcasting journey on. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And um, we'll be in touch. Oh, and Miko. Sorry. Bye, Miko. Nice talking to you. I'm here too. (laughs) That's my bird. (laughs) Oh, my God. Our first bird. Look at this. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Jamie. I really appreciate you having me and um, diving into topics like sex addiction because those need to be talked about. Agreed. Agreed. Queer Family Podcast. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I enjoyed it. And if you did enjoy it, feel free to listen to another or watch another. I have so many episodes for your listening or viewing pleasure. Just go pick one and, and enjoy. There's a lot. There really is. 
And also, if you really do like this show, please, I know I say it all the time, but please do consider supporting the show on Patreon. You're just going to go to patreon.com slash the queer family podcast. You're going to pick a tier. You're going to join and you're going to get that bonus content. And you're also going to get my love and adoration for the rest of my life. (laughs) I love you all. Thanks for tuning in. Keep on tuning in and I'll see you next time. Mwah.